Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? For me, I got a chef-grade range recently, and now I'm cooking new things every single night. Seriously, no cuisine is off limits. The point is, when we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. I can picture myself with a car full of groceries, cruising down the highway, soaking up the sun with the available dynamic sky panorama glass roof. Ah, pure bliss. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hi, this is Imran Ahmed, founder and CEO of the Business of Fashion. Welcome to the BOF Podcast. Very often, when we hear stories about successful entrepreneurs, they begin with an education at prestigious business schools or work experience at prestigious companies. But there are also some stories where entrepreneurship comes as a result of one's own personal circumstances and internal drive. And that's what's noteworthy about this week's conversation with Ross Bailey, the founder and CEO of Appear Here. There was that drive and there was that ambition, but I think often what limits many of us is we go, well, what's someone else going to think? How am I going to be judged? And I think maybe my parents instilled in me that anything was possible and it was better to give something a go than not try at all. Ross and I recently got to talking over dinner and I knew it was a story I wanted to share with all of you. He did not grow up in a privileged environment. He did not go to prestigious schools. In fact, he didn't go to university at all. But he has built a remarkable company entirely based on physical retail that he steered through the pandemic even when physical retail was completely shut down. I'll hope you'll enjoy this one as much as I did. Here's Ross Bailey on the BOF Podcast. Ross Bailey, welcome to the BOF Podcast. Thank you for joining me today. How are you doing today? I'm good. Thank you for having me. You and I bumped into each other at a dinner recently, and we had the most interesting conversation about your journey. And I wanted to share that with our listeners all around the world. But where I want to start today is how you became an entrepreneur. Because sometimes you read about people in the media and you see these kind of glowing profiles of people who had Harvard Business School or Wharton or Stanford, and they worked at like some prestigious company, and then they started their businesses. But your entrepreneurial journey started really early. And that's where I want to begin today. Did you always know you wanted to build businesses? I don't know if I always knew. I, do you know what? I was the annoying kid that was always, always finding an idea to play, always coming up with new ideas because I was constantly bored. And my parents sort of found, <laughs> used to joke that I you know, was asking questions the whole time and just wanted to be outside playing. And I think to me, business in the early days was a game. It was like, how can I get friends together, come up with something? And then how do we make it bigger and better next week and get more people involved? And I think maybe, you know, my parents are entrepreneurs themselves, small entrepreneurs. They own a small hair salon in a little town outside of London. And together. Together. So actually they met in a shop. My dad was walking down the street one day. He sees this lady in a hair salon. He goes home and tells my grandma that he's just met his future wife. And that weekend he goes for a Saturday job in this hair salon, sweeping the floors purely to meet my mum. It takes him about four years to get a date, of which point he's also a hairdresser in that salon. And long story short, they buy the hair salon. They've worked together ever since, and they've been married for like 45 years. Wow. So your entrepreneurial inspiration came from growing up in an entrepreneurial environment. Yeah, I think so. I think, you know, my parents are both from really humble beginnings. My mum's from Jamaica. My dad's from East London. Both of their families live in council houses and from that, you know, very working class. And I guess I watched my parents take this little shop and it became their livelihood. It allowed them to create a life. It allowed them to move into a nice little village. It allowed them to, in my view at the time, sort of have control over what they were building and where they were going. And I think that that always stood by me. And I, I remember there was a moment where they were redesigning their salon. And I was in there every single weekend making up surveys and going around the customers, asking them how good their day had been and, and what we could do better. You know, I was probably nine and rearranging the furniture. So I was a bit of a busybody. I'd be doing that during the evenings after school. And at the weekends, I'd be walking dogs with my friends and 
always coming up with something. So how can we do more the next week? So I think to me, entrepreneurship was a game. It was about how do I get people involved and have a bit of fun. So what did that mean for what you were learning at the time from your parents? You know, like you mentioned, and remember we have global listeners. So council housing and class are, you know, two important defining structures around income mobility here in the UK. I actually recently was at my reunion, my business school reunion, and someone showed some data on how the UK is one of the least hospitable environments for income mobility in the world, along with the US. It ranks somewhere in the middle. You know, basically the conclusion from this professor who gave this lecture was that if you're born poor in the UK, you're likely going to remain poor. Yeah. And growing up in this environment where your parents were, came from these humble beginnings, as you put it, did that shape your drive? I think so. I think that I was really lucky that my parents had a view of entrepreneurship, even though they had quite a small salon. They put all their effort into it. And it was this view that anything was possible. And whatever I would say to my parents every night, they'd be like, well, make it happen. You know, there was never a view of ridicule. Like to tell a story, when I was about 14, I managed to get a meeting with the Duke of Bedford. So, you know, very regal person. It's a big country estate with lots of land. And my dad drove me to the Duke of Bedford's house, this huge abbey in Woburn. And I had managed to get a meeting to put on a concert in his garden. Now imagine, I mean, one, I must have written quite a professional email, but I'm 14 and I turn up and I cannot imagine what this team thought when I walked into the room and got out my presentation. The fact that my dad didn't laugh dropping me off and the fact that now when I think of it happened to me, the fact that the guys didn't laugh in the meeting and they took me seriously and then politely declined it at the end. Oh, you didn't so, get to hold a concert? No, I didn't get to hold a concert with like 20,000 people in the Duke of Bedford's house. But they considered, I think probably when someone who had probably not even reached puberty was in the room pitching, they sort of went, this is a step too far. But my, my dad dropped me there, you know, and he was sort of like, go knock him dead, see how you do. And I think there was something about that that I never had someone telling me it wasn't possible. No one laughing, no one saying that that dream was too big. I think you're also not giving yourself enough credit. There's like some kind of internal itch or something that makes someone even come up with the idea that they can go and hold a concert for 20,000 people in some aristocratic estate. (laughs) I guess it's hard to pin down. As you say it out loud, it sort of just sounds like beyond naivety doesn't it like there was, there was actually something potentially mentally disturbing but it was that view of like genuinely how do you get more people involved and how do you do something bigger and better and in those moments it was a game but there was also no ridicule and I think that yes there was that drive and there was that ambition but I think often what limits many of us is we go well what's someone else going to think how am I going to be judged and I think maybe my parents instilled in me that anything was possible and it was better to give something a go than not try at all right So what was your first business? The first thing that was a proper business is I didn't get the Duke of Bedford's estate. So I managed to get a small local nightclub to give me their nightclub on a Wednesday evening where I would rent the whole club out. So I'd pay and I negotiated, I think, to pay the day before the event. And then I would sell tickets and it was for under 18. So it was like, you know, in my view, it was like the image of what a nightclub was in my head which I'd never been to before for under 18s. And we would do these nights where we literally ordered in sparkling grape juice and put sparklers on top and priced it like champagne. And we'd have sort of fire breathers in the entrance. And we just did this whole experience that in my head, a nightclub in London would be like. And we would have seven, 800 people come for these under 18 nights. And, and that became a business. And, and did it make money? And it made money. And it did... I put in was getting more money than than ever. And at that time as well, I was about to turn 16 and I decided to leave school. So I left school GCSEs. I had, I had no A-levels. So there was never a chance to go to university. And I, I put on these events and I sort of just had this idea that they would be all over the world and they'd be incredible. And you know, really it was an empty nightclub not far out of Milton Keynes. It wasn't glamorous at all. <laughs> How did Appear Here begin? Well, one thing I did do before here is I, I, I'd sort of had this moment where I felt like I'd ruined my life. What had I done leaving school? I had no qualifications. And you have this moment of huge self-doubt, like maybe I'm just not smart enough for university and, and all of these things. And I saw a advertising school that was in a newspaper and it said for once you'd been to university. So it's like postgraduate. And it was called School of Communication Arts. And everyone from Sir John Hegarty to incredible people, Graham Fink, who did, you know, the Levi's ad back in the day, all of these incredible people had gone there. 
and they had all grouped together to relaunch it. And they were picking 20 kids to be part of it. And I went and I applied thinking that if I get in, I'd skip uni. And, it, you know, and really it, it came down to that. And I did get in. And when I was there, the, the guy who ran it was an incredible guy. And he had a thing that he set me where he said, you've got to have three ideas before breakfast in order to get out of bed. So every morning I would come up with three ideas and I'd write them on my phone and I'd business jump out ideas. of bed. Business ideas. And what was funny with that or an ad idea or something like that, but business ideas. And it's easy the first few days. And after about a week, you realize that you've exhausted every idea you've ever had. And you sort of can't get out of bed that day if you, if you follow your rules. So then what happens is you start walking around the street and you become innately curious looking at everything. So I had a list of hundreds of ideas after doing this for months. And recently I went back and found this list because I was doing a talk at the school. And one of the bullet points says, empty shop, marketplace, Airbnb. And, you know, I must have just been walking down the street one day, seen a load of empty shops, probably read about Airbnb and gone, okay, that's what I'm going to have as my idea tomorrow morning as one of the three to get out of bed. And I never realized that that was part of the story until recently. But what happened is I finished that school and it was the summer of 2012, that amazing summer in London. The weather was much like it was today. And we had the Queen's Jubilee. The Olympics was coming. It just felt like London was the best place on earth, right? It was incredible. Before Brexit. Before all of the terrible things. It just felt like the world was only going one direction. And um, I took a little shop in Soho with my best friend. And we created a brand in a week called Rock and Rule. And we designed pictures of the Queen with David Bowie strapped to her face. And we just wanted to be part of this national moment. And to us, it just felt like, well, if we want to be part of it, we've got to be on the streets where everyone's going to be. And as a young guy born in technology, we instantly set up you know, our Shopify site and you pressed a button and there we could sell globally around the world. And then what was interesting is the next day we were selling nothing, right? You know, we had this online website, it was global, but we sold zero. And then by the end of the week, we'd opened up this shop, which in my view, like people had opened shops since the beginning of time, it would be easy. And it was a nightmare. And you realize that stores and all of these things have been set up for businesses of a certain scale. You've got to have a 10-year lease. You've got to have money. You've got to make lease commitments. You know, it's not something that's accessible. And we opened this shop after a lot of difficulty. And the first day, we got a queue outside. The second day, the t-shirts are banned by Buckingham Palace, which is a whole other story. And the third day, our Shopify site is going mad. And I suddenly realized that in my view at the time, it wasn't as obvious, you know, it's obvious now how these two things intertwine. But at the time, it was very much online versus offline. Offline's going to die. It's all about e-commerce. And suddenly, you know, I realized that that was playing a real difference into how the online world was working. So I guess I walked away from that experience of doing this store and being the customer and just went, hang on a minute. One, it was an amazing experience. Two, it sucked to launch a shop. If we made it suck less, would more people want to participate? Would more people like me and my friend want to launch a t-shirt brand or do whatever else? And the third thing was like, in my mind, this rule that I believed, which was offline world's dead, it's all online. I was something that, well, hang on, it was easy to set up online, but nobody cared until I did something physical. And I felt that there was a, a connection between those two things. And I came up, what I thought I came up with at that point, I realized it was a little bit before now, but I came up with this idea of the Airbnb of retail, which became a peer here. And, and two years later, we launched it. What year was that? 2014. So end of 2014, we launched it. And, you know, in the first weekend, we put it live and we were like, is this, is anyone going to care? And I, I put a few hundred pounds on AdWords. And I remember me and all my friends that were helping got on a phone call that night and were like screaming down the phone because we had hundreds of people requesting shops. Where does that demand come from back then? At the time, the first weekend, it, it, you know, it just came from us putting some money on Google. But that wasn't driving the demand. That was like the thing that connected you with the with people the looking. Like, why was that an issue? I think that when we started, there was not a single website. There was not a single place you could go on online where you could see a shop with a price. It didn't exist. I mean, just showing a piece of inventory with a price, that simple didn't exist. Let alone, there was no online legals and payments. There was no, there was no way of doing a transaction online. Meanwhile, you could find an apartment online. You could find other kinds of real estate. You could find pretty much everything else online. But there was no Nothing. commercial exactly. retail real estate available in the digital exactly. space. And they didn't want it, right? They loved the idea that there was no transparency. So you could call me, I'll give you one price, I'll give the other guy another price. They didn't want pricing on that. They didn't want online legal. They didn't want it to be simple. That was not how the industry works. And, you know, you would call an agent 
and say, hey, I've got this idea. And they'd ask for a business plan and, and put so much friction because it was like, unless you're a big deal, why waste my time? And um, what that means is that people can't participate. Interesting. Okay, so your first day or your first week, there's all this demand. How does the business evolve and develop from there? I mean, the first, one of the most difficult things for us with the business was that, you know, landlords are, are naturally very traditional. We have landlords that we would meet with. We would say, hey, you own this building. And they'd say, no, I don't. And 20 minutes later, they'd realize, they'd pull out a piece of paper and realize, oh God, we own a building. We didn't know we, re- <laughs> we, didn't know we own that. So that just shows you the lack of technology that's being used. So to try and get that behavior changed, get those landlords on board was hard. And actually one of the first things we did, I remember when we, we raised some capital, I went and built an editorial team. So we had like content writers and fashion photographers and they were going out and shooting bits on the streets. And I remember our first board meeting, they were sort of like, what the hell have you done? Why are you not spending this on more engineers or something else? And my view was that we had to create a catalog of the world's best streets. It had to come across that way in order to get landlords. And then I'd go and sit with landlords and say, hey, we've got you know 10 pages of people wanting a shop for Covent Garden. You've said you'll never be part of this. Why don't you put up your space? And eventually that encouraged people to start being part of it. They wanted to be part of this collection of what we were pitching as the world's best streets. So we jumped ahead to a board meeting and you said you, but you raised some capital. So when you pitched it to investors, how did you pitch it? Like what was? I hate like networking events. Like I hate them. I literally hate them. And I, I think that I'm relatively confident, but everyone who's ever worked for me always dies that they're like at a party or at an event, you're like in the corner looking miserable. And I, I sort of like to observe it, don't really like to go into it. And at this period, I went to every event. I mean, if there was like the London tech scene wasn't really a thing, right? There was like, everyone was talking about I don't know, mind candy or something. And there'd be like a little drinks thing in East London with 50 people. Every one of those, I was there. And I was trying to find out how did this thing work? What was this thing called venture capital? Because you don't know that. I mean, some people know that. Where I'm from, you don't know this, right? You don't know that people give you money for an idea. And then I had my like little iPad and I went to every investor. I mean, I went to everyone and pitched this idea. And every investor would tell you something else. You know, you've got to do this, you've got to do that. But were they interested at the beginning? Or Some were interested. I think that I was lucky that I was so young, but I think some people gave you the time of day and just thought it was like quite novel. But- you know, I had this iPad and I had, I'd also spent weeks building out the whole website. So I had a wireframe of every page. I would come in with a Bible that was honestly about 300 pages and be like, here's the website. And people looked at me like I was nuts. And eventually there's weird serendipity, right? Like you can look at the dots when you look backwards, not forwards. Like, you know, I look at my parents with that hair salon. I look at going to that school and writing the free ideas for breakfast. I look at doing that Jubilee store and suddenly the idea of appear here maybe make sense and the idea of wanting anyone to participate when I was going through the funding there was a weird moment where I met a guy who was an accountant one evening at one of these networking events I met an investor a week later and then I met a guy called Neil Hutchinson who's an amazing technology entrepreneur he's always been very quiet and he's one of the kindest guys I know and I met him and he said your name's come up three times this week my accountant told me to meet you. And one of my investment team told me to meet you. And it was pure luck, I guess, that that had happened in a moment I met him. And he went, let's do something. And he gave me some office space. Um, he said, you can have this desk space for six months. And they gave me, I mean, like our seed capital was like 100,000, which I thought was amazing back then. And we got going. And within six months, I think we raised a million. And a few months after that, we raised four or five. I mean, I assume that after Neil, you went and started pitching to some institutional investors who have like very rigorous investment committees and processes around how they make those decisions. Like, what did you learn as someone who didn't come from a business background, but had this entrepreneurial drive? What did you learn about engaging with investors like that? I learned a couple of things. Like one thing is I was obsessed with this idea. I mean, I was obsessed with it. So if someone would ask me about real estate and ask me about yields and ask me about how commercial real estate worked and debt and, and, and all the sort of finance side of it. I understood it because I'd spent so much time like, why does this thing not do short-term leases? Why is it a 10-year lease? Oh, okay, it's due capital sources and whatever else. So I understood that. And then I understood, you know, I was obsessed with fashion. I was obsessed with brands. And I, I would answer that. And I think people realize that you're a bit of a geek on this stuff. So that worked initially and we were getting traction. I'd been the customer. I managed to sign up very big land. So I went out and I'd be like, if someone said, Ross, you'll never do it. 
I'd go, well, what would make you think otherwise? Okay, I don't know, if you signed up the biggest landlord in the world. Okay. And I'd go and find a way to sign up if I could, which we managed to do the biggest landlord in the world. And then those things, I think, gave people confidence. I also think because of not having the means, it meant that you know, I couldn't afford a lawyer, for example. So I met this lawyer and she said, well, look, you've got a- Tina Baker. Tina Baker. She's a lawyer as well. Yes. My favorite. I love We Tina. talked about this at okay, dinner so because amazing. we found out that we both- had Tina as like a fairy godmother early in our... So yeah, Tina was so my having someone godmother. like Tina on your side helps yes. too, right? But Tina also, you know, you know her. So she's very straight-talking American. And she sort of went to me, listen, you can't afford me. So read the contract yourself, underline the words you don't understand, and I'll help you. And she got me to come around her apartment one sort of Friday evening. And we had a glass of wine. And I sort of underlined all these things. And she said, the rule is, if you don't understand the word, you've got to look up the definition. So then we sat there and I'm going through a contract with her and I understand what these random terms mean and reverse vesting and this. And, and liquidation preferences exactly. and all that stuff. What do you're like going through your first term sheet? You're like, what does this mean? Exactly. And I guess a lot of people, they would pay a lawyer and then they'll say, you don't want this. But because she made me read it first and underline it and I had to do half the work because I wasn't paying her, I learned. So then when you're dealing with a bigger investor a few months down the line and they say, look, this is the term sheet and they give it to you and you go, oh, well, you know, I, I don't want that preference. Don't want and you're doing it in the moment. I think they're like, okay, you're not just a you know, kid. So I think some of that stuff worked. And then also, you know, one of the biggest lessons I remember in those early days was not letting yourself also be like bullied. I remember one investor sat me down and they said, oh, we just want to have a chat. And they'd given us a term sheet or against someone else. And they said, look, if you don't accept this term sheet, we're going to put the money tomorrow into your competitor. And they did this sort of whole thing where they sat there and they were like, whatever. And I actually wanted to do the deal with them. And I just said there and then I was like, look, do you know what? Do it with the competitor. We don't want to, I don't like this dynamic. Why did you do that? I just think that I walked into this room and they were like, he said it was going to be two of us. And there were seven people. And I was sat on the other side and they made a joke. They're like, does this feel like Dragon's Den or something? And I just remember thinking, what's this about? And I was like, well, it feels more like The Apprentice. No, I don't think so. But I just remember thinking, I just don't want to work with people like that. And I walked away and I remember the guys back in the office and our existing investors were you know, not very happy. They were like, you know, you've got months of cash left. You've just said, turn someone down. What are we going to do now? Well, you know what? One of the best pieces of advice I had about choosing investors was don't imagine them when things are going well. Yeah. Imagine them when things are going terribly. Yeah. And could you sit across them from a, on the other side of the table and have a really difficult conversation and would they still support you and investors who behave the way those guys seem to have been behaving creating a real life dragon stand for you you know that's just gives you the heebie-jeebies a bit right exactly and i think what was great with it happening so early is they invested in the competitor to their word the next day and um we ended up getting a term sheet that was like five times what they were offering at a much better valuation with much better investors. And within two years, that competitor had gone under and we were doing something else. And I just remember thinking, do you know what, that was a, if you are going to build something anyway, you want to build it with people that want to be part of the journey, right? Yeah. So that was a great lesson. And and long story short, we raised a few rounds. We were building the business. And and by 2018, 2019, we had offices in London, Paris, New York. Sent like 250,000 brands, retailers and entrepreneurs being on the platform. I read that statistic and it sounded insane to me. Yeah. Can you explain that number to me? So when you say you had 250,000 brands, retailers. Or entrepreneurs. Or entrepreneurs. That means 250,000 individual brands, retailers, and entrepreneurs used a peer here's platform. Those are people that have created profiles and ideas on the platform. So they've got a, a biz, they've got an idea name. They've got something they're wanting to sell. They've got an idea. So we've got all these ideas sat there. You know, what's the difference between a thought and an idea? To me, an idea is once you put it down on paper, you sort of have this side of you that wants to commit. So someone who's had a thought that's gone on to appear here, that's created an account, that's written down this idea, whether it be a butcher's, a baker's, or a international or luxury Or a candle brand, store maker. Exactly. Those guys who are on the platform are the ideas, and then it's our job to make them happen. We've launched about... 30,000 stores, 20 to 30,000 stores. So we've got a long way to go with so how many people are there. So there's that much demand in 2019. Yeah. But there's limited supply. Like it's like the story of the world right now, right? And then was that the high street is dead. Nobody wants it. And we had a contrarian view, which is, it, that's not the case. I think that 
retail is under demolished, not oversupplied. Like there's a lot of crap buildings. There's a lot of malls that are insignificant. But when you have small high street stores and streets, people want to be on them. And we've seen that. And, and that's always been a contrarian view, but our data has always backed it up. Okay. And, you know, we, we got to that stage where we launched tens of thousands of stores and we've launched shops for everyone from the Tom to the Webe to all the big luxury guys to streetwear like Supreme to, I know, Michelle Obama's bookshop or Kanye West stores. So really it was everyone down to someone that's launching a beauty salon in Harlem or someone who has just launched a fishmongers in Peckham in London. It really was entrepreneurs or brands or people wanting to create. What I really like about that, actually, Ross, is it's so consistent with your own journey because it feels like it democratizes access to something that was so difficult, so opaque, so expensive, so rigid. Yeah. You know, not everyone is Michelle Obama or Kanye West or Supreme, but there's a lot of people out there who have an idea. And the way the whole leasing, commercial leasing system is set up, we talk about systemic racism or classism yeah that that's one example of it it was just like how do you how do you even take an idea and make it real in retail if you don't have the ability experience resources access to navigate a system that was created for like really big companies or rich people 100 percent. and you know as you said emma when you think about technology as well and you think about the tech sector you know, there aren't many founders who are black, who are mixed, or, for, or frankly, who are from a background that isn't one of the top public schools. I mean, there's a lot of people I really admire. And then, you know, the more we chat, the more I realize that their backgrounds are quite similar. And what you realize is, to your point, real estate is hugely inaccessible. The industry and the people that work in real estate look the same and went to the same, basically, four schools. Yeah. But what's really interesting with streets and what I found really inspiring is streets have always been the place where anyone can participate. So whether it's immigrants, whether it's whatever, whether it's someone like my mum who sets up a hair salon, whether it's the local takeaway restaurant, whether it's the local shop, all of those places when I think about growing up were people who were entrepreneurial, who were doing something, who were trying to build a livelihood. And that was the first option. And that then becomes the spring step of whatever they might do. And my view was the more you get into cities, how can you make that more and more accessible? How can you make it that more and more people can participate? You know, I have that fundamental belief that culture comes from streets. And I think that culture comes from the real world and still today as it always has done. And therefore, if you can allow more petite people from more backgrounds to be part of that and to be part of the streets, I think you create better, more thriving cities. And, you know, research shows that the more walkable streets you have, the more independent stores you have, it's more economically viable a city, that those cities are more culturally rich and that there's less mental health problems. So I think that it's like fundamental to how we as humans also connect. Okay. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you feel like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. When it comes to style and luxury, eBay gets it. They're making sure the things you love are checked by experts. And not just any experts, specialized experts. Real people who love this stuff with real hands-on authentication experience. So when you see that shiny blue check mark that says authenticity guarantee, shop with confidence. Every inch, stitch, 
Soul and logo is verified authentic through a detailed inspection. That's how you know that eBay's got your back. Because when you finally step into those sneakers, put on that watch, get your real gold glow up, swing that handbag over your shoulder, or step out in that streetwear, you'll realize that feeling is unlike any other. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? For me, I got a chef-grade range recently, and now I'm cooking new things every single night. Seriously, no cuisine is off limits. The point is, when we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. I can picture myself with a car full of groceries, cruising down the highway, soaking up the sun with the available dynamic sky panorama glass roof. Ah, pure bliss. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. So 2019, things are on fire. Your biggest problem is that you can't find or access enough space for these 250,000 ideas. Then COVID hits. I mean, your entire business is predicated on physical retail. Yeah. You've raised all this capital. That capital comes with pressure and expectation. You have a team of how many people at this stage? Over 100. Over 100 people who are relying on you to keep this business alive. That must have been hard. It was crazy because, so 2019 was our best year ever. We did more than the previous four years combined. And in end of January, beginning of February, we do a thing every year where we fly our whole global teams out. So New York, Paris, guys from LA, they flew into London and we do a thing called the Global Gathering. And we had Thomas Heverwick speak. We had Benedict Evans. We had some amazing people from the worlds of architecture, from fashion, from design. And they tell their story and they told why they thought Appear Here made sense. And we have this amazing gathering as a team. It was incredible, right? You, that's why we do half of what we do. It's for the team and the culture and the things that you're building. And four weeks later, this, I think, Paris Fashion Week, I meant to be going there to meet with a ton of brands. And I'm like a hypochondriac. So I start to see this COVID things happening and I'm like, I'm not going to Paris. <laughs> I cancel all my Hypochondriac meetings. or profit. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I'll go with the ladder. Um, so I'm like, I'm not going, I'll catch COVID. And what if this thing's a real thing and everyone's flying from all over the world into this place? I don't know if I want to be part of it. It's sort of half jest, half that I'll probably just be anxious. So I don't go. And I'm also closing a funding round. So on March, the, I don't know, first week of March, it was the day the public markets basically had their biggest crash since 2008. The night before, the money hits our account. And we close a round that luckily closes off some debt. It closes off some new capital and it values the business at, I don't know, nine figures. And I'm like, this is incredible. And that weekend, it was my birthday. Me and my closest friends all went away. And I'd been a bit ill the year before and luckily got it sorted. And everyone was sort of sat there like, this is your year. Congratulations. You know, it's your birthday, whatever. Four days later, after doing an all hands to the team where I say, here's the plan. Here's the new cities we're opening. This is what this cash is going into. Congratulations on the best year so far. Within four days, we'd shut our New York office. We'd shut our Paris office. We'd shut our London office. Our revenues are down 95%. Now to put that in perspective, Lehman Brothers when it crashed went down 35%, right? 95%. And not only was it down 95%, we had money going out because we decided that the right thing to do was to refund everyone who had booked going forward. And suddenly that cash we raised had gone from having years of runway to we'd be out of money by summer. And you've got to sit from having a week where you're with your friends and family and you're, you know, you've got this deal over the line and you're telling your team the plans to having a list of people and figuring out who do you have to let go by the end of the week to survive. That happening a week to me was very hard to get your brain around. So what was going through your head in the most raw way possible? Because, you know, having myself run a business through a period like that, I don't think everyone often understands what entrepreneurs, like how much pressure it comes with and responsibility it comes with. And I 
what what's going through your head at that time? Like, who are you accountable to? You have all these different stakeholders to think about. You have your own personal health. You have your family. Well, I think the first week as we're shutting down the offices, we forget now that every 24 hours was like a week, right? It was like, you know, New York's fine. Okay, the next day, New York's done. We've got to send every, got, how do we get people on flights? How do we get people out of there? And I think that first week as a leader, and, you know, we had a very, a relatively big team in different cities. You realize that you've got this responsibility that I had never witnessed before. People who are genuinely scared of what's going to happen to the world, right? Genuinely scared, what does this pandemic mean? Who are reaching out to you for guidance. It's no longer about company. It's no longer about the business. It's no longer about strategy. It's like, are we going to be okay as, as humans? And they're looking for you for that advice and leadership in that moment. And it was all about how do we make sure everyone's okay? That was the first thing for that first week. How do we close offices? What are we going to do just to like make sure our team's okay? But also like we had entrepreneurs where you're sat there going, their business is under if we don't refund them or we don't make the right decisions this week. So there was at that moment, nothing really to do with appear here and all to do with those people. That we, I felt in that first week an immense responsibility for that. It's so interesting the role that companies now play you know, we've talked a lot in the last couple of years about the fusing between personal and professional spaces, right? But in terms of institutions, what I learned during COVID was actually the organizing mechanism of a company and the relationships and infrastructure and communication that a company plays in an employee's life meant that at a time like COVID, when there was so much uncertainty, employees were turning to their employers they couldn't trust the government. Like no one knew what was going on. Like it was so confusing. And so you end up taking on this additional mantle of like, well, these are people I just have to take care of because they genuinely, we don't know what's going on. And like, not that any person could predict what was going to happen, but just being a, a resource, a guide, being able to like lead people through mountains of information that, you know, some of which wasn't consistent or was contradictory. Yeah. That was really interesting at that time. I thought about this for a while, and I think it came true in COVID that, you know, before people used to have, whether it be church, whether it be yeah. religion, whether it be their local community, whether it be the local coffee shop or place, there were real places that people hang out and, and built friends and built peers and built advisors and built people that they looked up to in their lives, right? And now really before COVID, and this is why I'm sort of torn just separately with this whole work from home thing that's now suddenly thing, because before COVID, if someone sat with me, my view, when we were looking at getting a bigger office and we look at what we were doing, was we have so many more roles we as an organization play in our team's lives, especially our, the younger members of our team's lives, than anyone's ever had before. Because they have no institutions and therefore they're looking at us if they've got mental health, they're looking at us for friendship, they're looking for us for everything. And, you know, that's a bad thing and it's also a good thing. But regardless, there's responsibility. And in that moment of COVID, I think that was the first thing we we massively felt. And you know, things like, okay, if everyone's going home and they're isolated, what are we going to do? Like there were things like that as well as how are we going to look after the team and, and the customer? Then annoyingly, I mean, I was furious because as I told you, I'm a hypochondriac. I'm not that bad a hypochondriac for people listening. But anyway, I had like my gloves. Okay. I was going into the office with gloves. I had a mask. No one was wearing a mask. I had a mask. Everyone was taking the piss out of me. I had someone in the office and, you know, we shut a week and a bit before the government. So this is way before. I've got people doing temperature checks. I'm like, I'm not getting this thing. And then I get home my first day, a week before government lockdown. Like I've got so much to do. In my head, I've sort of like Will Smith, I am legend. I'm going home with my dog. I'm like, we're going to be fine. And I get into the house and that night I wake up and I am in a pool of sweat and I have COVID. And I am so ill for COVID for weeks. Oh, no. For about five weeks, I can't get out of bed. I, maybe because I was trying to do all the works at the same time, I am ill. To the point that I can't breathe properly. I mean, I was really bad. And at that point, you're sat there and I was feeling terrible. I felt this responsibility. At this point, I'm having to be on calls, making decisions about, are we letting people go? What are we going to do? And, and that was a horrible moment. And, you know, because of COVID and everything, every night you're having the worst dreams. It was intense. Anyway, long story short, I, I, that period was tough. Suddenly it was like everything was falling apart. And, you know, I touched upon earlier in 2019, I, I wasn't very well. So I, I had to go into hospital every day for about four or five months. I, I got bitten by a tick, got Lyme's disease, which I've never really spoken about. And 
I was having to have antibiotics intravenously every morning. So in my head, 2020 was the year, right? Everything was about 2020. But also in my head, I, I had made a promise to myself, well, to, I don't know what you do in those moments, sort of to God, to whoever there is. I said, look, I would rather not have the business and have my health. And worst case scenario, if I have this thing, then the business better do amazing, right? But you can't do both. And then I'm suddenly there and 2020, it's meant to be amazing. I'm lying in bed, I'm ill. All of like the old symptoms and stuff I have were also coming back. And maybe that's why the COVID has affected me. And on top, the business is falling apart. And I'm like looking at the sky, I'm like, this wasn't the deal. It was one or the other. You can't take away both. What do you do to make it through a moment like that? Because, you know, as an entrepreneur, all of us have faced these like defining moments. And this sounds like a, I think COVID was probably a defining moment for every entrepreneur doing anything. But what did you do to manage your health and then also think about the responsibility you had to your team and then also figure out how to keep the business afloat? The piece, one of the pieces that was funny there is when you go back to this idea and why appear here makes sense or my belief of why it made sense. In COVID and in those deep moments at that point, there were people like, I remember watching telly and Barry Diller was on the news saying like, you know, can you imagine that no one's ever going to go into a cinema or a theater again? And Diane is one of our investors. And I, so I was like listening intensely and I was listening to what he was saying. He was going, the idea today is we look at another human being, think they might kill us. How are we going to sit in a room of individuals knowing that and feel comfortable? And this is a point that when you were watching Netflix, you'd watch two people touch and you'd feel weird, you know, like, and that really did happen. So you're sat there going, has this fundamentally changed how we as humans are going to interact? And there were those thoughts going through my head, like, does this now just not make sense? And then luckily, I think around May, June, as things started to ease, and I remember walking around London and places like Broadway Market and places in Chelsea, like Pavilion Road and different small little streets with independent shops that I had seen doing better before the pandemic were packed. And I just remember sitting there and I was in Broadway Market and I'd just gone, you know, wandered around and been in central London, it was empty. And I was like, why are people here? Like, arguably, there's a virus still going around that could kill you. One, we can only buy essential stuff, right? So whether you're on this street, that street, or the other street, all there is to get is coffee and a croissant, right? And yet, everyone's here gathering. And it made me just think that as humans, it's just something that we all need. It's what we require. And I was looking at it going the same streets that we've seen doing well in 2019 are doing well in the middle of a pandemic. And I just felt that this wasn't the time to pivot. This wasn't the time to relax on our idea or rein it in. Actually, that appear here would make more sense coming out of this than ever before. I had suddenly this view that we had all lived through a collective moment where when I had sort of gone around before speaking about how important our local cafe was and our streets and people were like, yeah, yeah, like, well, yeah right, but e-commerce. Now we were living in a world where you could press a button, anything would arrive tomorrow, right? It was, we were living the e-commerce dream and I was miserable. And I was like, if this is the future, I don't want it. And then I'm watching young people gathering on these streets. I'm watching people queuing up for coffees. I'm watching videos going around online with like people dancing in the rain in Paris. And I was like, the idea that somehow we don't want to go to these places, I just don't believe. So you double down in your conviction of the appear here opportunity. But at the same time, a few minutes ago, you said you only had months of cash left. And we know now that the summer of 2020 was only a short respite before there was another wave of lockdowns and another wave of COVID. So how did you make it through economically? So I, fortunately, as much as I believed in the opportunity and believed that appear here would work in the long run, I was also like, what's the worst case? And my view was that when we had first gone into lockdown, I had said it's going to be, I think, minimum 100 days. And it was about 100 days till we eased. And as we were easing, I was like, I think that the best case scenario, the world would be back to normal by December. And then I was like, okay, well, what's the worst case scenario? And I thought, well, honestly, I think it's then another year. So I was like, we've got to make the decision that we survive until December 2021, which at the time seemed crazy. But I was like, that's the worst case. And if we're going to let people go, we need to do it once. I don't want to do it twice. And, you know, sadly in that summer, I had to get on a Zoom call and let go of 80, 90 people. Out of? Yeah, 100 and something. I think there were 20 of us left. Wow. And it was brutal. And these are people that honestly at that point, that team was the best team ever. I, I, I genuinely loved everyone. I'd worked with people since day one. You know, people had been interns that were now running Global Brand or were interns that were now running our New York office. Like we had built this team that I felt really reflected our values. And it was, it was really, really, really tough. That's advice that 
I heard from quite a few experienced investors, entrepreneurs, was that if you're in a moment like that, don't cut in multiple waves. Like make a plan for the worst case scenario and plan your cut against that worst case scenario because continually cutting and cutting and cutting is like a death by a thousand cuts. A hundred percent. So we did it once. We fortunately didn't have to do it again. When that second lockdown happened, we was just like, okay, well, we you were very now. lean still. We were super lean. But the difficult thing was what people forget for a business like ours is as an entrepreneur, you can tell people a vision. You can tell people where the world's going. And, and I had that conviction. But people always have to trust you, right? And people trust you because you say, well, this is going to happen. So we're going to make this cut. We're going to be fine by 2021. But as things would ease, you know, imagine that summer, the world starts to come back and appear here gets to 50% of where it was pre-COVID. So you're like, guys, we're halfway there. Let's keep going. And then by November, it's back down to zero again. And then by last summer, it starts coming back. And then Omicron hits in December, we're back down to zero again. So we had so many full starts. And then you've got to keep looking at people and going, stick with it. And there's like, I just gave it all the energy. And now we're back to zero again. Like, Ross, really? So that was really tough. And, and I think really, honestly, the only moment we came out of COVID, I'd say was February, March this year. So January, Omicron happens, our numbers are back down to zero. Fortunately, within two weeks, we're back to basically pre-COVID numbers. So I was like, wow, that came back fast. And in February, March, we start to see a spike in COVID again. And for the first time, we see it have zero effect on our demand. It doesn't even go down 1%. It just carries on. In a way, your instinct, your conviction that as human beings, we seek out and need physical interaction and physical experiences has really been proven true. And I think that's clear. I think we've all learned that we're going to be living with COVID for the foreseeable future. There are going to be future waves. There will be new variants. But from a human behavior standpoint, I think we've learned to live with it. And so as you look ahead for the company, what does that mean for a peer here going forward? And where do you take the business now that maybe was not part of your plan when you started in 2012? What's new that's emerged as an opportunity from this crisis that gives you opportunities you might not have imagined before? For a peer here, I think that I always felt that the idea made sense that these that entrepreneurs, smaller business, larger brands would want flexibility. But I think that what we're building is about the de facto for being offline. It's about connecting the offline world to, to the online world, helping people with commerce bring their ideas to life. I think that I didn't expect at such rapid speed to see the retail of the past, the sort of resistant retail completely disappear. And most of those brands, I mean, brands that seemed like they'd be here forever have gone. Like Debenhams, like Topshop. Exactly. Yeah. And then the resilient retail, these small, tiny, like we just said, the butcher, the baker, the candlestick maker, they've carried on and they're thriving. And then the resilient retail of entrepreneurs, the resilient retail of e-commerce, that have actually realized that they still need physical and they're creating more and more experiences. And you walk down streets, you know, where we are now, you walk down multiple streets in London. And I genuinely think that what you see on those streets, whether it's the cafes, the shops, for instance, are in many cases the best they've ever been, ever. And I think that to look for the future of retail in general and, and beer, we have to look at the very past. And I think that there are so many things in a moment that feel like the new trend and the new thing. And we've lived in an interesting place where it's like, what the hell's real, right? And since ancient Greece, places existed, which were called the Agoras. And Agora translates to gathering place. And they were the first shopping malls where people would come to trade spices and things they found. They'd showcase, they'd have markets, they'd be places for entertainment. They've literally existed from a time BC. People still want that today, in my view, and they will still want it a thousand years from now. And there is something innate about us as human beings, as social characters. There is literally research that's come out. If you, you know, there was a piece of Harvard research came out from COVID that said, why did our memories go? Why did we not remember stuff? How come I can remember a conversation with a board member at dinner weeks before COVID? I cannot remember the 20 Zoom calls we had. How come you can remember a hotel room you were staying in from five years ago? And you can literally picture the room, the side of the bed you were sleeping on, who was on the other side, but you can't remember a conversation you had in the middle of COVID. And it's because our brains are literally wired to physicality. They're literally wired to places. 
So the idea, if you're building a brand, that you're not going to have something physical, which is how our brains are wired, how we build memories, how we build connection, I, I, to me, it seems ridiculous. So you also have this really interesting global perspective in terms of your business. Do you see any of these trends around post-COVID differ by geography? Or is this like a consistent thing you're seeing in New York, Paris, London, and everywhere else that you operate? We're seeing record demand in every city. We are seeing that commerce brands, people that sell stuff, massively accelerating their want to be offline. Many people that did very well over COVID are wanting to do that. But I think that there are a few trends that are driving it. I think the first thing is, I sort of always believe if there's a push one way, there's there's an equal push the other, like sort of yin and yang, right? So in one sense, as we have globalization, we become more global. I think we're becoming more hyper-local. So when we look at brands like Nike, when they've launched stores of us recently, it is a local Nike running shop for Brooklyn. When you look at Gucci, um, we did Gucci stores in East London. We did stores for them in, in other locations. You look at what they just did a few weeks ago for their collaboration with Adidas, and they took a working men's social club in Peckham. They're going hyper-local from the language they use to the way they act, but yet they're a global brand. And I think that means that from a real estate perspective, that changes the locations, that changes where people want to be. It's no longer about Fifth Avenue and Regent Street or the Champs-Élysées. It's about those neighborhoods and those interesting places. I think that at the same time, as you've got more connectivity online, we see that online advertising is hitting record levels. It's more expensive and it's less efficient than ever. What does that mean? It means that suddenly the real estate world becomes an efficient way. And with something like Appear Here, it actually becomes a scalable way with flexibility where you pay as you go like any other media channel. And I think we're seeing that across the world. I think we're seeing from younger people that the more connected they are, the more they want the opposite. Everyone has this idea that young kids are on their phone all day. If you go to interesting streets and you go to some of the streetwear stores, they're not on their phones. They're walking around, they're enjoying themselves. And there are kids that I know now that have literally a old school phone that they use at the weekend because they don't want to be connected. So I think that we're seeing these trends that are happening globally that actually are driving people more back to the real world. And I think that that's only a good thing. I've so enjoyed this conversation on multiple levels. And I just wanted to finish by going back to the beginning of your story, to that young man who wanted to hold a concert at the Duke of Bedford's estate, who was clearly a driven idea guy, but who didn't have all of the experience and exposure and access that you have now, who didn't have like A-list investors and top brands supporting his business. Like what, do you, what advice do you give to someone else who's growing up in a family that maybe doesn't have the resources, the connections and privilege to kind of open doors from the get-go? Like how, how do kids break through to realize their entrepreneurial ambitions just like you did? You've got to find something that you're obsessed with. And I don't think that I'm obsessed with real estate. I don't think I'm obsessed, but I'm obsessed with seeing people bring their ideas to life. It's just something that really excites me. I love people connecting. I love that stuff. And, and I'm obsessed with seeing a problem, something you can make better. I'm obsessed with that idea you spoke about with access. I think if you find something you're obsessed with and you see something that isn't being done right or that you don't believe in, and often something that's contrarian, right? It, is it contrarian to not have a formal education and get investment? Is it contrarian to say that offline world makes sense when everyone's talking about online? I think having a contrarian view and then having real conviction. I think that a lot of investors, a lot of people talk about contrarian views and conviction, and then they have a huge herd mentality. And whether that's personal or whether that's the idea that you're going after. And the data shows, your experience shows, the qualitative, the quantitative, all that stuff aligns then have the conviction to follow it through. And that's whether you're the entrepreneur or whether it's the person backing the entrepreneur. If you do something, have conviction. But so many young people say to me, I don't know what my passion is. Or I don't know what the idea is. I know I want to build something. How do you find that thing? I think that the magic piece about being an entrepreneur is you can do anything. And I remember when I was younger, I was sort of like, well, I want to go to fashion school or I want to do... X or I want to do Y. And I remember sort of reading an article about Tom Ford and seeing him do what he did with Gucci, where essentially not only was he a creative, he was a businessman, yet he was a trained architect. And then watching him do movies and then watching other things he did and just thinking, God, if you're an entrepreneur, you can sort of do anything. And I feel like being an entrepreneur gives you that flexibility or it did in my head to go, well, maybe I'll do this now and then I'll do something completely different. And 
I think in the end, my other view is that we all think that we're more important than we are and people care more than we do. And my view is we've, you, know, you can't care what people think and whether it's going into a pitch or whether it's your idea or whether it's finding your passion, sort of just give it a go. And I think that, um, I guess to summarize, I feel that most people other than you aren't going to truly care if you succeed or fail. Most people aren't going to care what you do. So you might as well give it everything and um, you know, take risks and come across a bit stupid and not overthink what other people might think of you. Because the truth is, is when you're doing amazing, everyone's going to tell you. And when you, know, you win an award or you have an article on the same, the opposite. My biggest thing is you have to ignore the highs and ignore the lows and just stay in the middle because otherwise it's distracting, but also otherwise you care too much. What other individuals think and in the end, really what I'm saying. In the end, it's about that journey, right? It's your own journey. Yeah, it's just about like, it's it's good advice because I think as your entrepreneurship journey unfolds through ups and downs, if you're too worried about what other people think, you're just not focused, you're expending energy on things that are just not constructive. So if you're just focusing on trying to solve problems and deal with like the crises and challenges and opportunity like that's that's where your energy should be focused on and the truth is is that you know nobody knows unless they're in the arena like you know if someone has gone on a pitch and they're from a different background they're going to have a very different experience if someone's running a company and they've had a background the way they act is going to be very different to a kid that went to a public school we all are so different and i think that if you worry what someone else thinks of you we get into a place where you create formality and you create vanilla and you create the same crap as everyone else. And I think that for the young kid that's trying to figure out what they would do, I would just, you know, as easy as it says it's done, people say, go for it. I think don't overthink it, whether it's your passion, whether it's anything, any decision we make isn't for life. Right. And I think the idea of embracing flexibility probably is something that we should all do across the spectrum. Yeah. Well, Ross, that was such an incredible story. Wow. COVID crisis, 95% revenues down, resilience, flexibility, and uh, good luck in the future. Thank you, Emma. I appreciate it. The BOF podcast is edited and produced by Emma Clark, Kate Vartan, and Eric Bria in the BOF studio team. Hi, this is Imran Ahmed, founder and CEO of The Business of Fashion. When I first started writing BOF, it was out of pure passion for this industry and with an eye to how the disruptive forces of digitization, globalization, and consumer shifts would change the way fashion works. 15 years later, we are well on our way to helping to define the fashion business of the future. As I travel the world, some of you ask me, what's the best way to support BOF as we continue to act as your guide during these turbulent times? The best way to support BOF is to support our journalism by joining BOF Professional, the largest community of fashion professionals in the world. A BOF Professional membership gives you access to our agenda-setting insights and analysis, which you won't find anywhere else, plus the opportunity to learn from our talented team correspondents and editors, as well as our wider network of the fashion industry's leading creatives, thinkers, and futurists. Follow the link in the episode notes to learn more. You know that's the sound of another sale on your online Shopify store. But did you know Shopify powers selling in person too? That's right. Shopify is the sound of selling everywhere, online, in-store, on social media, and beyond. (coughs) Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash BOF, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash BOF to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash BOF. 
Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? For me, I got a chef-grade range recently, and now I'm cooking new things every single night. Seriously, no cuisine is off-limits. The point is, when we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. I can picture myself with a car full of groceries, cruising down the highway, soaking up the sun with the available dynamic sky panorama glass roof. Ah, pure bliss. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX. Luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast, and I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher, because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait. Is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher.